Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, this is Joe Castellano. Welcome to the new podcast, the Sports Virus Podcast. And after 12 years of doing team podcasts, starting with the San Francisco Giants Inside China Basin podcast in 2010, I followed that up with the 49ers Extra podcast with Steve Bono, and then the Warriors Dubs OT podcast with Ray Woodson. Well, now I'm going in a different direction. We're going to talk all sports all the time, and we're going to talk to a variety of sports figures from around the country about the latest news, and we'll have in-depth discussions with some of the personalities that are involved in sports, whether it be a player or a coach or a writer or a broadcaster. A lot of different types of people, uh, even we're going to have, a, sometimes we'll have an executive on uh, or a college sports information director. Uh, it could be anybody around the world of sports, people that are involved in the sports that we love to watch. And I came up with this idea during the pandemic a year ago when I was talking to the great director from CBS Sports, Bob Fishman, and realizing how much fun that was to you know not only talk about San Francisco sports, and of course this podcast will be slanted towards Bay Area sports, but it was great to get into his career and uh, what he thought about different sports and how they were covered as a director, and I actually hope to talk to Bob again before he retires uh, doing his final Final Four this season. So that's what this podcast is all about. You can hear every one of them here on the Believe Podcast Network, and I can't wait to get started. Well, the first guest is a legend in the sports broadcasting business, a man who I've had the privilege of working with as his NFL statistician for CBS Sports the past 16 seasons, believe it or not. He's a great friend and one of my play-by-play idols. Greg Gumbel joins us here on the Sports Virus Podcast, the first one. Greg, thanks a lot for being my first guest on this podcast. I can't believe how much money I had to pay you in order to be the first one, Joe. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's welcome. I emptied the account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things I admire about you, Greg, is that uh, you always have this wit about you. And as a broadcaster, first and foremost, you use your real voice, which is something that I have a problem with with a lot of broadcasters that you hear. They're trying to put on a fake voice. Yeah, hell yeah, everybody. Or, or they're trying to sound like Vin Scully, you know, pull up a chair, something like that. But you're Greg Gumble. You're always Greg Gumble, And I don't think that you've ever wanted to waver from that, right? Well, I, I, you know, people have asked about, you know, I, I, I hear from a lot of kids who are just coming out of uh, journalism school, uh-huh. and and to be perfectly honest, they want my job, right? Yeah. <laughs> they go, oh, well, I just don't think you can get there. No, that's not what I say. But I think that part of the problem with with people not only coming into the business, but who are in the business, they they try, I believe, to act like someone that they're supposed to be. Or you know, you're supposed to sound like this person on radio or TV, when in fact, I think the value is in sounding like yourself. Now, it, I'm not saying it hasn't worked for a lot of people, because you and I have both met people, Joe, that if you talk to them on the street, their voice is completely different than the one that they use on the air. Yeah. And, 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 that's, and that's what you're talking about. And, 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 and you, who's to argue with it if it works? But I do know for a fact that it wouldn't work for me. And I'm stuck with the voice I have. <laughs> well, another thing that I really admire about you, Greg, is that you never get 
flustered because it would be very easy to get flustered in a lot of situations in network television. And as somebody who has sat next to you, you know, and listens to what's going on, you know, sometimes the producers get a little hyped up or sometimes there are technical difficulties. Like this past Sunday, we were in Seattle and your monitor went out. So, you know, they're trying to fix the monitor while you're on the air. Those are not easy things to, to deal with while you're trying to talk about a game. To be fair, everybody gets screwed up every once in a while. I mean, I've made mistakes on the air. God knows I've made more than my share of mistakes on the air. Uh, the analysts can make a mistake, um, and, and producers and directors in the trucks are, are no different. And I think once you face up to that and you realize that the sky isn't going to fall just because there is something out of the norm happening right now, the sooner you realize that, I think the better off you'll be. And, gosh, have I ever... Have I ever gotten flushed? I don't know. Uh, Phil Sims made a joke once about, you know, we were ready to do our first Super Bowl. And, um, you know, everybody's kind of all tense as we approach kickoff. And Phil looks at me, and I'm dancing along with the tunes that's playing in the stadium. (laughs) This is is kind of fun. But everybody goes through that in some way, shape, or form. And, and, And I think you just have to power on through it and hope that they will as well and not let what's happening with them affect you. No, I think a lot of sportscasters started in radio, and then when you go to television, the first part of it that can be nerve-wracking is going on camera, and it seems to me like you've always just uh, had this ability to be smooth on camera where it just never bothers you. Was it always like that? Is that something that was a gift for you? No, I, I don't know if it is a gift as much as it is something you just get used to. I do know that when I first began in the business, uh, which was back at uh, the NBC affiliate in Chicago, WMAQ-TV, I sweat on camera so much. I mean, they used to keep the tapes back in videotape. They thought it was hilarious. (laughs) And and, and my nickname nickname was Waterfall. (laughs) (laughs) And they just thought thought it was hilarious. And, and And the thing about it is... Is, is I was nervous, and it took me, I, I am so grateful to that station for hanging in there with me until I kind of learned what it was all about. My brother never had such problems. Uh, he was always so self-confident and cocksure about himself that he, he, he never gave it a second thought. He just went out there and did it, whereas it took me a while to get to that point. And I think... Um, you know, I, 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 is, is, it, is it good to be so self-confident? Sure it is, because that's one less thing you have to worry about, is, is, is acquiring the confidence that you need to do the job. Um, but, but, uh, but that wasn't me at the beginning. And now, you know, I've, I've joked, uh, you know, I, when I did the NFL Today uh, as the host, I joked with our producer, I said, I know how we should do this show one day. We should do it unrehearsed and drunk. And the show would be great. It would be just great. And, and, you know, nobody wanted to sign off on that. But I just thought that it would be terrific to do. Just give it a shot and just see how it goes. Because, you know, I mean, winging it is not always a bad thing. (laughs) So important to uh, relax. And that's something that I think you give to your partners. You've worked with so many different partners. And, you know, some of them are new to the business. I mean, you mentioned Phil Sims. Um, you know, he had some experience beforehand. And, and Dan Deardorff was seasoned. You know, he had worked on ABC Monday Night Football. But, you know, somebody like Bruce Arians comes in the booth. He's been a coach. He hasn't been a broadcaster. And Trent you Green. Have, yeah, and Trent Green, right. You yeah. have this ability to make them feel comfortable. But how much of a challenge is that? 
Well, I think you, uh, you know, you kind of take the temperature of the room and see what's, what's needed. Um, the, the thing with Trent, I almost said problem, not a problem at all. Uh, the thing with Trent is that Trent, and, and, and you know what, to a certain extent it was Phil too, because they are so involved in the game and what's happening and they see the technical side of it, they see the, 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 uh, the, the, the intricacies that go on, they get so involved with that and they almost forget about being human. And what mm-hmm. I do, and I take it upon myself, is poke fun at them every once in a while. <laughs> I, just take, I just take a shot at them here and there and, and, and let them loosen up and be themselves because I know what they're like off the air. And I think that some of that, if they can come through as that part of the, of the time on the air, I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, Bruce Arians, yeah, Bruce, well, he, you know, he was, he was so easygoing and fun to be with. I think Bruce forgot that he has to talk to an audience. And more often than not, he ended up talking to Trent and to me. <laughs> and, um, and, and I thought that, it, and for, for Trent, I thought Bruce was a godsend because I said he finally got someone in the booth who speaks his language. Yeah. Because they would start talking about a play, and I have no idea what they're talking about. Now, well, the quarters and the halves, and then they double down in the nickel, and then it's going to go, oh, okay, when you guys are finished, just let me know. I'll just throw a commercial. <laughs> well, yeah, it was interesting because he would call out plays before they would happen because he was a coach. He knew what kind of formation it was. And you know, you've worked mostly with quarterbacks. Generally, analysts are quarterbacks. But now you have Adam Archuleta. So that gives a different perspective being a guy from the defensive side of the ball. It's an interesting perspective, too, because Adam reads everything very well as it happens. And the thing about Adam is he doesn't have to wait to see the replay. He knows instantly what happened, and he'll begin talking about it long before the replay comes up. He'll see what went right, what went wrong, and he is, he's really good with the telestrator. And, and you're right, defensive guys are not exactly a dime a dozen in our business um, because, uh, as you mentioned, Phil's a quarterback, although, uh, and, and Deardorff was, a, was an offensive lineman. But then along came um, Trent and Bruce and Rich Gannon. A quarterback, you know, and everybody talks about uh, our guy Tony Romo, who does a terrific job, um, and and he acquired some notoriety for being able to predict the plays. And while he is good at doing that, I have the feeling that we've got a bunch of people who can do that, because that is what quarterbacks do. Quarterbacks take a look at what happens in practice, they look at game film, and then they see the play outlined on the field and they know exactly what to expect, uh, what, what play to audible to, what's going to work for them. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, you and I have both known guys who could, who could do that. It's just that it's not their style. It's not their thing to do, whereas it is Tony's, and, and, and it certainly works for Tony. I'm curious, you mentioned hosting the NFL today. Uh, what do you enjoy most about play-by-play versus the studio, and what did you enjoy about being in the studio as well? I, well, you know, first of all, any involvement with the game of football was always terrific for me. Um, and I spent a year early in my career at CBS as the uh, college football studio host. In fact, when I, I was working at Madison Square Garden Network in New York, and I was made an offer by CBS to do freelance NFL play-by-play. And I said, Why? I've never done it. And and they said, well, because we think you can. And so they signed me to do a minimum of five games that season. I did 11. And it was Mm. me and Ken Stabler, which was an adventure in itself. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? Because because that's the year I learned to drink. <laughs> but 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 Kenny was Kenny was 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 terrific and fun to work with. And then CBS signed me to a full time contract, and I was looking forward to doing more NFL play by play. But they assigned me to be the college football studio host, which I went okay. You know, still I'm working full time at CBS now, and it was nice. But uh, but I missed. I, I don't like college football. I don't. I shouldn't say like. I don't enjoy college football as much as I do the NFL. And then after that first year was when CBS parted ways with Brent Musburger. And so the value of being in the studio at that time showed them that I could host a studio show. And then um, when um, uh, when the when the the new year came around, uh, they put me and Terry Bradshaw in the NFL today to host that studio show. And what I like about it is you're involved with football. What I don't like about it, and what I miss terribly, was being at a football game. Because if you are the host of the NFL today, you don't. This sounds strange to say. You don't get to see very much football because you're doing updates and then you're doing preparing for halftime. And then once this halftime is over, you do halftime for another game and then you do halftime for another game and you have time for another game. And by then, the kickoffs of the second halves are going on and you've got to go back to doing updates. And then you're preparing for the 4 o'clock kickoffs. So you're going from one thing to another and you see little smidges of, of action, but you never really get to watch football. And that's what I miss the most and that's what I enjoy the most now. Yeah, there's nothing like being at the 50-yard line uh, every Sunday. Uh, Ken Stabler, man, he was quite a personality, wasn't he? The snake, he was, he was fun to watch as a player, but what was he like as a, as a person, you know, as an analyst? I'm not, I, I won't get into all the specifics with Kenny, <laughs> but, but let, me, let me just say this. He wrote a book called Snake, and he outlined some pretty outlandish stuff in there. <laughs> And I would run into a guy he played with, you know, and I'd say, is all that stuff true? And they'd say, Greg, he didn't even put the good stuff in there. And I went, oh, my God, <laughs> that's frightening. <laughs> but he was, uh, yeah, he, he was, uh, he, he was, <laughs> we went, we went, we did a preseason game. And um, he said, you should be here when this game is over and the players come piling out of the locker room, he says, it's like parole day at a state prison. <laughs> These guys can't wait, can't wait to get the heck out of there. He, he, had, he had a line for everything. He'd experienced everything, and he was, he was really fun to work with. You mentioned calling the Super Bowl with Phil Simms, and uh, it's got to be quite a thrill. I mean, tell us about what goes through your mind when you're doing a big event like that? You did a couple of Super Bowls, and you've done so many big games over the years, but the Super Bowl in particular, uh, what goes through your mind when you're preparing for that and when you go on the air with it? To be honest, to be honest what, 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 goes, what went through my mind is the same thing that went through my mind when I hosted the Olympics in Norway in 1994. I don't think that it's easy to get past the thought of so many people watching. Yeah. You know, like millions and millions of people are watching and 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 you can't get away from that. You know, in the in the first Super Bowl that I did, it was the Ravens beating the New York Giants, Super Bowl 35. And you know, you get to a point where um you know, you're trying to do everything right and then our crew missed a key play. It wiped out a Giants touchdown because of a holding penalty. Of all the 
cameras that we had in the stadium that day, we did not have the holding penalty. And so everybody's wondering how, you know, the Giants got called, the, the touchdown got called back because of a holding. Let's see the holding. We don't have the holding call, oh. Greg. So we just had to, you know, work our way through that and continue to do the game. So, but things like that happen at big events. And, you know, you know how much we prepare for these games, Joe. Um, by the time, by the time the game rolls around, you feel like you're overprepared. And if it's a good game and the game carries itself, you don't get to 80% of the things that you've studied and prepared for because the game is what it is. And then, you know, you concentrate on that. It's when the game is horrible. Uh, it's a blowout. It's just a terrible football game with no interest whatsoever that you begin digging into the knapsack and dragging out things that you studied about on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, and you're telling every story, oh, here's a picture of the guy with his uncle when he was two, you know? <laughs> and you go on and on like that. So so every every game is different, but the preparation is the same. You always have to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. You can't prepare for 37 points in the fourth quarter. That's what happened in Super Bowl 38, Patriots and Panthers, your second Super Bowl. And, of course, we've come full circle because those two teams are playing this Sunday, and you're calling that game. So I'm wondering what kind of memories that will bring back of that game and that amazing fourth quarter, 37 points in the fourth. Hey, don't tell me you're calling that game. You're going to be sitting right there next to me. (laughs) But, yeah, you know, I guess you never really know. And and I, to be honest with you, I was kind of disappointed. I don't know who the other teams were in the running for the the NFC uh, championship. But I remember being sort of disappointed that it was uh, Carolina because I didn't think that they were the best draw. But they came out and they played a heck of a game, particularly in the fourth. Jake DeLome was outstanding, and they had to, they were beaten by by a field goal at the buzzer. And it was um, you know it turned out to be a great game. It certainly was better than Super Bowl 35. And we thought we thought Ravens versus Giants was going to be a terrific game, and you know the Ravens just killed them. So, uh, so, so you never, you never really know, but, but yeah, you know, any, t- you're right. There are some things you can't prepare for, and 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 there are some time, sometimes you just sit there and go, wow. I mean, you legitimately, at least I do. I try not to make up. I not try. I don't make things up. I mean, if I go wow, I'm not saying it for the benefit of the audience. It's because I'm really feeling wow because I, I don't, I don't believe it's right to fake enthusiasm or to fake excitement. Um, if if I'm excited. I think people should know that it's because I'm really excited. If I sound excited, I'm really excited. And I never do it to fake anything. At least I try not to, that I know of. Well, I I definitely think it was exciting when you were doing the tuck rule game. Raiders, Patriots in the snow. That's one of the more memorable games that you did with Phil Simms. Take us back to that night. I mean, you know, that had to be something else when that play happened. And just the whole atmosphere around the game with the snow and everything. Yeah, they had covered the tuck rule in our meetings uh, prior to the season, and I didn't really get the whole tuck rule thing. And when it happened, I sure thought it was a fumble. And even on replay, I thought, that's a fumble. You know, that's a ridiculous. <laughs> and, of course, you know, the tuck rule went away shortly thereafter. But for that game and that night, things, things fell right for, uh, you know. And, and, and look, they were the, you, you know, you know it's going to be an exciting game visually when it's snowing. You know our bosses love bad weather football games. 
because it adds something to it, whether it's a muddy field and, and a running back can't turn the corner because his feet go out from under him, or it's snowing and there's a completed pass and you go out to the 35, I think. <laughs> right. It's somewhere around the 35, maybe the 40-yard line. You can't tell. And they're, they're wiping the field off, and, and, and they had the snow plow out. They had the snowplow out that night and right. prior, to the, prior to the winning field goal. I just, it, it, it's, it's a fun thing for viewers to watch. Um, you know me. I'm not a big fan of cold and ice and snow, so I wasn't overly <laughs> overjoyed with it. But the fact is that, yeah, it's, without question, it's a memorable game. Yeah, I, I just remember trying to get out of that parking lot. It took for hours. How about the one that we did in Buffalo where the Miami Dolphins were creaming the Buffalo Bills for three quarters, and then in the second half, this snowstorm blew in. And all of a sudden, the guys from Miami couldn't do a thing, and the Buffalo Bills could do everything right. Buffalo rallied to win the game, and then it took us an hour and a half to get out of the parking lot, and everybody missed their flights. <laughs> That's home field advantage for you right there. Yeah. For sure. I wanted to ask you, too, about baseball, because you and I talk a lot about baseball. You're a huge baseball nut. You, uh, you're a big fan of it. You played in college at Loras College in Dubuque, Iowa. Uh, so what keeps you watching it? Because I know there are a lot of people that are old-time baseball fans that are a little disturbed by the way the game is played and managed these days. I am disturbed by the way it's played and managed these days as well, Joe. And you know that. You and I, it's funny. We go to a football game and we spend half our time, you and I, talking about baseball. But I don't think very much of the people who run it, nor do I think very much of, of, of the people who manage it at times. Um, uh, this, this, this whole thing about analytics drives me up the wall <laughs> because analytics don't tell you what to do. They tell you what's happened in the past, which has nothing to do with the present. Uh, I, I, don't like, I don't like analysts who say, oh, that was a bad pitch. Well, why was it a bad pitch? Well, because he hit it over the wall? No, hitters can hit good pitches over the fence. Yeah, It has nothing to do with it. Or that was a bad pitch. Well, suppose the pitch was made according to scouting reports, and that's where you're supposed to, hit the, 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 supposed to pitch the guy, and he just happened to connect and hit the ball over the wall. There are so many assumptions that are made about the game of baseball, and, and we as broadcasters make the mistake of not letting the game speak for itself. Just watch the game and appreciate what happens and try not to explain it all away as a matter of, of some, some pre-game analysis. Of, well, you're not supposed to. Have, God, I saw, I saw a left-handed guy hitting cleanup for the Houston Astros last night against a left-handed pitcher. You never saw that early on. And I thought, well, you know, okay, they must know something. And what did he go, 0 for 4, <laughs> 1 for 4, something <laughs> like that? It wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't any great shakes. But, but I do love the game of baseball. And, and you know, these people, these, these people who, uh, who complain about the length of the game, I love the game, and the game is what it is. You know, if you think that the game is, is, is running uh, way too long, go watch a ping-pong match or something then, you know, and, and leave me alone. But I love, I love the game of baseball. But, but now, does it go – Overly long, yeah. When a pitcher comes out, when a, when a pitcher comes out of the game after throwing three straight balls or something like that, you and I, you and I have talked about this. I've seen managers yank a pitcher because he gives up his second hit in five innings, and you go, "What are you doing?" <laughs> the man has shown he can get the opposition out, and and you've seen it a lot, Joe. They yank a guy who's winning and bring in a guy who gets beat up and they lose the game. 
Yeah, I mean, we don't even have real starting pitchers anymore. A lot of times you're uh, you're having these openers, and that's disappointing because I, I think that a lot of us looked forward to the pitching matchup, and you, it just doesn't come to fruition anymore. Look, that I think, Joe, is going the way of the Edsel. Um, if, if you think of these teams who have spent so many hundreds of millions of dollars for starting pitching, and what we're doing is we're coming real close to saying, you know what, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference because if you yank your starting pitcher after five innings, are you really getting your money's worth? Can you imagine, who is it, Tom Seaver or Bob Gibson, people like that? Um, I worked with a guy at Madison Square Garden Network in New York. His dad used to be a groundskeeper for the New York Mets. And Tom Seaver was in the ninth inning, and things got a little tight, and Yogi Berra was the manager at the time. And the story is that Yogi walks out and he walks up onto the mound and Tom Seaver said, Yogi, you turn around and get your ass back in that dugout. And Yogi went, okay. And he turned around and he walked back. And that kind of thing just rarely happens anymore. And, and, and I like, I mean, I agree with you. I think, I think a good pitching matchup can't be beat. But when's the last time you saw one that lasted more than four or five innings? No, and then, you know, you got a starter getting pulled with a no-hitter. And we even saw that in the College World Series, too. And that's an event that you covered. I mean, the purity of... The College World Series was always something that I enjoyed. Uh, when you got a chance to do that, uh, what were your favorite memories of it? Oh, I just, I, well, the, 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 let's put it this way. One of the biggest memories I have is one I didn't like, but I understand it. Uh, the metal bats. Yeah, the sound of you know, it, yeah. Clink, yeah. clink, <laughs> clink. Oh, somebody's popping beer, beer bottles in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but yeah but it, and you know what I understand it's a, it's a money thing you know I went to a small college and every time every time you know we cracked a bat in batting practice our coach would groan and go but 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 I but I do I think that you're right it's the pure nature of the game at that level um, the the enthusiasm that the players have. Uh, there's no showboating. That's another thing. I just it, the, the showboating just bothers the heck out of me, and it bothers me in football too. It bothers me in any sport, um, but but in college baseball there was none of that. And and the really interesting thing about it, Joe, is doing that college baseball World Series every year, and then a year or two later you see these kids in the major leagues and performing at a higher level. Yeah, and you did the Major League Baseball playoffs. I remember you worked with the late Joe Morgan. Uh, there's a guy who really turned himself into a good analyst, right? You know, his, his, well, there are people who are able to step into the booth, and if nothing else, and I'm not saying this was Joe, but anybody who was great at the game ought to be able to tell you a lot about what's going on on the field. There are some that I have worked with who will go unnamed who cannot, <laughs> and you sit there and you wonder, did he ever play the game? Does he even know? But then it, it doesn't. It doesn't always pan out. But Joe was always fun to work with, and and he was and he was easy to listen to, and he recognized. To me, that's the thing about an analyst. You see things instantly, um, instead of having to wait for the replay to go. Oh, so that's what happened. Oh, this guy came around and got that block. You know, they see it. They know. In baseball, uh, you can tell when a guy is 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 making the right play in the field. Um, you know, Joe would say, oh, he threw to the wrong base. And, and he'd say it as soon as the guy did it, you know. And unless you've played the game and know that instinctively, um, you, it's easy to miss that until the replay comes around and you go, oh, why didn't he throw the second? Why did he throw the third, you know? <laughs> Before we finish up, uh, I wanted to go back to the beginning because you mentioned being a sports anchor in Chicago. And before you got that job, 
you were selling hospital supplies in Detroit. Tell us, how did that happen? How did you end up getting in the sports field? Joe, I was doing a lot more than that. You know, when I first came out of college, um, well, my, my, my summer job for the two years prior to getting out of college, I was uh, a salesman in um, a clothing store, men's clothing store, oh, okay. in downtown Chicago. And then when I was leaving at Christmas time and you know, my senior year, they said, come back and see us when you graduate. And so I, uh, I went back and they offered me a job as an assistant advertising director. So I did that for about a year. And then after the first year was up, I went in and I asked them for a raise. And they offered me what amounted to about $25 a year. <laughs> so I went, I went, Greg, this is not good. At about the same time, I had an ex-teammate from school and uh, a fraternity brother who worked at Time Incorporated in Chicago, and he was an assistant buyer of paper and printing. And he said, hey, I'm going back to Iowa and go into the jewelry business with my dad. Why don't you come get my job? And I went, what, are you hiring? And he said, no, but let me put in a word. So I went over and I did an interview and they hired me. So I, uh, I started doing that, an assistant buyer of paper and printing, which means we purchased, the, we purchased the paper and hired the printers for all the direct mail, renewal, and promotional material for Time Life, Sports Illustrated, Fortune, Time Life Books and Records. And we did that out of Chicago. Well, six months after I got the job, my boss left. And at age 22, I became the head buyer of paper and printing. <laughs> and I was there for about, oh, three years. And then I began having trouble with the selective service system. Uh, the trouble was they wanted to send me to Vietnam, and I didn't want to go. Mm -hmm. And I kind of fought with them over and over. Well, in the middle of the fight, Time Incorporated said, we have to let you go because we can't do anything with you because we don't know what your future is. And I said, I understand that. So um, uh, when, when I finished my fight with the selective service system, I took a job as a sales representative for American Hospital Supply, and, that was, and then they assigned me the city of Detroit. So I was working there for about a year and a half, and then I got a call from my brother who was working in L.A., and he said, uh, the NBC station in Chicago is looking for a weekend sportscaster. Are you interested? And I went, yeah. <laughs> so I flew to Chicago, and I auditioned with about uh, a couple hundred other guys. And they said, don't call us. We'll call you. And three weeks later, they called. So I began as the weekend sports guy in Chicago in March of 1973. And, and as I've told you, Joe, like, um, I, feel, I feel fortunate. My brother felt fortunate because you don't normally get a chance to start in this business in a market like Chicago, or in Bryant's case, he started in Los Angeles. You know, people, people start in places like Ypsilanti, Michigan, or Battle Creek, Michigan, or Yuma, Arizona, and, and they try to work their way up from there. So I felt incredibly fortunate to be there, and I started as weekend sports guy and became sports director, and I was there for seven and a half years before ESPN came calling. And then ESPN for five and a half years, and then three years at Madison Square Garden Network, and then five at CBS, and four at NBC, and then back to CBS. It is very obvious I cannot hold down a job. <laughs> what a road <laughs> traveled it is. And, yeah, and you mentioned that Bryant was such a natural at the beginning. Uh, I'm curious about your relationship when you were a kid, uh, and you know, did you guys always play sports together, and, and then how that developed over the years, because I know you're still really close with Bryant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, and, and and you know when when uh, when 
friends say, well, you guys must have really, really interesting conversations. I go, no, we do the same thing we always did when we were a kid. We argue about sports. <laughs> we argue about sports. You know, he grew up the Cub fan, and I grew up the White Sox fan in Chicago, and my dad was the referee. And, 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 and you know, we will, we will just constantly, and he'll just, Gregory, Gregory, that's not true. That's not true. I, I disagree. I don't care if you disagree. Brian is true. And, you know, <laughs> we, go, we, we go around and around and around, but we probably talk about once every week, sometimes once every 10 days. And, um, and, or, or so we'll just text each other during, during a game. Here's the best story. And I don't mean to prolong your show, but, but here's, the, here's the best story. Do you remember the playoff game in the National Hockey League years ago when four overtimes, I think it was Montreal and the New York Islanders. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it was forever. All, it's like two in the morning. And Bryant was at his home in New York, and I was at my home in Connecticut. And Bryant's wife says to him, is this still going? And Brian says, yeah, I wish I could call someone and tell something about it, tell them about it. And she says, call Greg. And Brian waves his hand out. He goes, Greg is watching. <laughs> and of course I was. We're both watching at the same time. Of course, yeah. yeah. And you, you love hockey uh, and you love music. And that's, that's what I wanted to finish with, just especially your love of the Rolling Stones and the friendships that you've developed there. Uh, that's such an important part of your life. You know, people kind of get surprised by it, but I have said, and I'm not ashamed of it, a big sporting event or a live Rolling Stones concert, I will be at the Stones show anytime. <laughs> and I just, I mean, I just love them. You, you know, I've told you, Joe, if, if I'd been ugly and skinny, I would have been a Rolling Stone. <laughs> 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 but but I feel like I feel like the highlight of my life. Two highlights in my life. One is the birth of my granddaughter, which was nine years ago, and the other is getting to meet and know the Rolling Stones. And I, I got to do that in uh, in the mid '90s, and um, and 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 they were terrific. They were tremendously nice to me. Uh, Keith Richards has been my hero for forever. Uh, I get to go backstage and say hello before the shows. Um, I get really good tickets, and, um, and and I just love them. And there's nobody, you know, there's really nobody else, you know, that compares. I like other classic rock music, but but to me, they're just they're just the kings, and, and always will be. Can't you just get on stage and just make believe you're singing with them? You know, I would love that. <laughs> so so one of my one of my college basketball partners, uh, one year, and oh no 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 no, it was NBA. It was was Bill Walton. Oh. And Bill Walton feels the same way about the Grateful Dead as I do about the Stones. And he went to Cairo to see a concert of theirs. Cairo, Egypt. And he walks in, and he starts to walk up the steps onto the stage, and the security guy stops him, and Bill just says, I'm with the band. <laughs> and he walks up, and I believe he sat on a speaker off to the side of the stage listening to the show. <laughs> wow. He is he is an interesting guy for sure, Greg. I, yeah, <laughs> Greg. I I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, I can't tell you how much I enjoy working with you every Sunday on the NFL. Uh, the years have flown by, uh, but I really enjoy it. Can't wait to see you in Charlotte for the uh, Patriots and Panthers this Sunday. I'll be there. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it, man. That's Greg Gumble. Great to have him on the first podcast, podcast number two. Coming up next week, and I am scheduled to talk to Ron Wotus, the longtime Giants coach. 
who retired after the 2021 season. For now, I'm Joe Castellano. Thanks for listening to the Sports Virus Podcast on the sportsvirus.com and the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.